Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, there's going to be another rally at Tim Horton's Field. Max Kerman of the Arkells joins us to tell us more. And the latest on meetings involving the hereditary chiefs of British Columbia and the Canadian government. Will the rail blockades come down soon? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Arkells have a new single. That you just heard is out this week and have announced that there will be another rally at Tim Horton's Field. To talk more about all of this, Max Kerman is with us from the Arkells and on the air now. Max, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, my pleasure. How you doing? Good. Uh, how are you? Where are you? What are you doing? How, what's life like? Give us, give us a glimpse into the life of a Canadian rock star. Uh, we've had a busy week. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on right now. I gotta say, but it's, it's all fun stuff. Uh, yeah, but most of our our brains are being taken uh, by the rally and just thinking about you know how to launch the thing and, and get the word out there. We're, we're all really excited about it. All right, let's get the logistics of this all down. Give us the details. Well, uh, the date is uh, June 20th. It's at Tim Hortons Field. And uh, we are back after two, two long years. We haven't played Hamilton uh, you know, for two years. And we're bringing along Bleachers, uh, which is the, the project from Jack Antonoff, who's like one of our favorite kind of musical minds in the game right now. You know, he's, he's really well known for being part of Fun and producing Taylor Swift and Lord and St. Vincent. But his own project, Bleachers, is incredible. And we're huge fans. Uh, we're also bringing up Kay Flay, uh, who's an old friend of ours, who's sort of like like an electronic alternative, um, I don't know, singer, like songwriter who's got a bit of a hip hop flair. She's from uh, LA and Havaya Mighty, who is one of Canada's, I think, most exciting emerging talents. And she's from Brampton. So it's a really diverse lineup. And uh, yeah, we're really excited to start rolling things out. What is different about this show for you guys? Why is this become such an event, even though this is only the second? Uh, Well, you know, I think for us, it's like, we tour a lot and we feel like every every time we look back on older shows we go oh man we've we've done a lot since then and we've added a whole new uh new bunch of tricks uh you know to our bag of tricks so it's so we we think we think back on you know what we would have been doing 2 years ago and we think oh man we've had so much more experience like since then we had a chance to to headline Scotiabank Arena in Toronto and we played Bud Stage this summer and we we've done a lot more touring um, and also, when we when we played Tim Hortons Field last time, our record wasn't even out. Rally Cry had not come out yet. We had a couple songs from it, but that was it. So uh, yeah, we were we're very very excited uh, to to have a show in our own backyard. You know, we we can bicycle down there, and and it'll be uh, it'll be really fun to see everyone from the neighborhood. You talked about this the first new music since Rally Cry. Um, what is it like to go and put a product out like that? You know, put your heart and soul into it. These are your babies. Then you go out and you take it on the road. And then there's a long period of time where you don't do that again, and then you come back with years in the making. Do you ever are you concerned about uh, the process and and whether you can still be as successful with it the second, third, fourth, fifth time, whatever? Yeah, I think for us, uh, you know, we're really curious about what's happening in sort of the modern music landscape and and how artists and bands are able to operate in 2020. You know, like the landscape for music has changed a lot since we first started, but we really love the challenge. And I think for us, it's like we constantly have our ear to the ground and we're constantly trying to push ourselves to like evolve. And, um, you know, I, I think the core of our band will always be 
you know, the five of us and, you know, two guitars, keys, bass, and drums. Um, but from there, we can go in a lot of different directions, and that's really, really exciting to us. And, uh, you know, we, do, we don't really have that much interest in repeating ourselves ever. We don't want to ever be a one-trick pony. We just want to kind of keep developing new songs and, and new ideas and, new, and just kind of new skills uh, to add to the, our operation. I remember when you guys came in here, uh, it seems like 100 years ago now, in this new band out of Mac. They were getting some traction. Everybody was talking about them. Did you ever think it would get to the point where it is now? Uh, no, I, I can tell you, like, we, we never thought we'd, you know, get to sell out the Casbah <laughs> in, yeah. in Hamilton. Mm. So, yeah, each it's really been building blocks up for us. It's not like anything happened overnight. And, then, you know, I think the the thing that sort of kept us on the right track is if if we if we're working with good people and hardworking people and, and people that we admire, um, good things will happen. And if we just kind of keep our head down, uh, you know, or things kind of come our way eventually. It's usually not you know, the next day or the next week. But, you know, there there's certain songs of ours that, you know, we, we wrote in our, you know, bedrooms and now are people's first dance at their wedding. You mm. know, like th- those things wow. kind of happen over time. And, <laughs> and you never know how the music will become a part of different people's lives. And it's been really cool, um, you know, seeing... Uh, you know, public school teachers uh, and people from the autism community use our song mm. "Relentless" as they're out there protesting, or you know, we see you know the Thai cats use "Thai cats are humming," or yeah. you know, um, a lot of hockey teams have used "Knocking at the Door." So there's it's just really cool to see where where these songs land in people's lives. Uh, I've been in radio for like 35 years, and and a lot of that in music radio. You bring up a valid point. You said building blocks. I think this mm. is so important for a band as opposed to an act that just goes out there and is white hot and gets a big hit record right off the top. You guys have seemed to have laid a foundation. Does that make you feel more, feel more comfortable about what you're doing? Um, yeah, it seems like the relationship with our audience is like a deeper one. And I, and I think, you know, I, I often think about bands that have been at it for a while, whether it's Blue Roadie or, or a band like the Tragically Hip. That Those know, are two bands that immediately come to mind as soon as we talk about this. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I, well, I think about them and I go, you know, the reason why those bands are beloved is not because of one song. It's yeah. because you go, oh, I remember seeing the hip um, at my college Frost show and then I saw them on this tour and then I saw them open for another band and then, and then I saw them headline, uh, you know, at Molson Park or whatever it is. And it's a collection of all these things that really add up to mean something, I think, much greater. And for us, you know, it's like it's so cool when we hear stories about people going, it's like, oh, I saw you at my, my Frosh Week at Queens. <laughs> And then I saw you open for them, Crooked Vultures. And then I saw you guys playing a little club when you guys were, you know, out west or something. I don't know. And then all these things add up, um, you know, for us being a part of these people's lives, you know, for 10 years now. How much does the Arkells Musical Review come up? Um, Who do you mean, like... uh, (laughs) When you do the the Motown uh, Motown stuff and all of that. Yeah. It comes up from time to time. You know, we started doing that a while ago just for fun. You know, my dad um, went to Wayne State University in downtown Detroit, and he loved Motown and uh, had those records playing when I was a kid growing up. And they're just amazing, timeless songs, and they're really fun to learn. And it's just kind of, it's just, it's a nice uh, trick to have up our sleeve, you know. I, I remember seeing Springsteen uh, maybe six or seven years ago at, mm. at Skydome in Toronto, and I just realized, it's like, oh, man, this guy's been developing so many different moves depending on the night of the night yeah. of the week and what the, what the flavor of the night calls for the over three or four decades and I think that's like a good thing to think about it's just like okay there's a, there's a lot of different uh, you know tricks you can lean on to, to make some magic every night and that must keep the show fresh I mean it must keep it interesting for you guys 
Oh, yeah, for sure. We're always kind of taking notes. You know, we go to a lot of concerts ourselves, and, you know, inspiration will strike at any time. You know, it's like I remember going to see Jay-Z and Beyonce, and we're like, oh, Arkells can do something like that. We'll put our own <laughs> twist on it. But there's different there's, – or going to see Arcade Fire or Bruno Mars or Coldplay, or, or there's lots of great bands that we, we see in clubs that are incredible that we can go, oh, that, that's an awesome idea. How do you how do you kind of mold it um, to make it your own? You guys all started at Mac. How do you keep this together? Uh, everyone's pretty hardworking. I got to say, everyone's very like, kind of committed to the cause. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think we uh, we all try to reinforce this idea that it's like a very lucky job to have. I think also we have people around us that keep us very honest. You know, it's like we have people in our lives that are nurses and teachers and social workers and really like important jobs related to the community. And, and when, when we're catching up with our friends and family and we hear about how, how, how hard their days are and, and yeah. the kind of the impactful work they're doing, I, I always go, okay, guys, we have nothing to complain about. We, we have a very, <laughs> very fortunate job. Uh, what can you tell us about years in the making? Mm. Yeah, well, you know, it's, um, it's one of these songs that um, – it was kind of kicking around, just like I, I usually write, uh, like you know, different phrases or quotes or just ideas and concepts, like in my phone. And um, yeah, and I just like this idea of um, you know being okay with all the bumps in the roads because you you learn something from every time things don't go right. And if you and if you kind of keep at it for long enough, you you've learned a lot. And so. I, you know, I was thinking about the idea of like, you know, the time is now to, you know, to learn from, you know, everything you've been through uh, to make this moment the best it possibly can be. And uh, I remember after the Raptors beat the 76ers uh, the last year in the playoff run, <laughs> I was like, and that, that, I think the next morning is when the, the, the song really came into uh, in, into kind of a clearer vision. I was like, you know, and I just think that that expression can be used in, in a lot of different contexts, and I, and, I, and I really liked it for that. Tim Hortons Field, Saturday, June 20th, Arkells, another rally, and you've been, uh, of course, the new single is Years in the Making. Max Kerman's been with us from the Arkells, and Tim Hortons Field, June 20th for rally number two. Max, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Keep it going. Good luck. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, rail protesters, same old characters creating anarchy no matter what the occasion is. That's the commentary today. Uh, a lot of these people uh, are the ones that do the rounds at various protests. So, uh, you know, whether it's Pride, one was uh, charged with assault at Pride, uh, others involved in uh, the brouhaha at the mayor's house when they went down there and started demonstrating in the mayor's neighborhood. Uh, in the wee hours of the morning. So, again, it's these people are just using the indigenous uh, community's uh, cause. They're jumping on the coattails just to create anarchy. Same sort of people that be, uh, be, uh, beat up Lop, uh, Lock Street, carrying the banners, uh, you know, we're the ungovernables. Uh, anarchists just looking to disrupt everything. And if uh, a small portion of the Wet'suwet'en agree with what they agree with, then they're in. And very much the same with the pipeline protesters who don't represent the majority of these communities and are just uh, piecemealing what they need and, and jumping on the uh, small number of Wet'suwet'en who uh, disapprove of the pipeline. And because it, uh, it uh, conforms with the agenda of the anti-pipeline protesters, they're interested in those people, but not in the majority 
of the indigenous communities along the route that want this and hope to prosper from it. Now, that being said, uh, there was a meeting uh, held yesterday uh, in regard to, uh, finally, a a meeting between hereditary chiefs and uh, provincial officials, this being uh, the Indigenous Minister from uh, the Federal Government and the Indigenous Affairs Minister from uh, the British Columbia Government, and a meeting with hereditary chiefs. To talk about all of this, um, uh, a person who's really been a vocal proponent of speaking up for those majority in the indigenous community that want this to lift their communities out of uh, out of poverty into prosperity and give them a piece of the action, something that we've been looking for for a long period of time. And people like Ellis Ross have been working on for the better part of 10 to 15 years. Uh, let's bring him into the conversation, ask uh, his comments on what has happened yesterday. Ellis Ross is with us, MLA for Skeena. He's a band leader out there. Ellis, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on the meeting yesterday, and what are you hearing any words as to uh, what was accomplished and the feeling of the meeting? No, I haven't heard about any results coming out of it, but I did hear that... Uh band members are starting to get involved now on both sides and uh, now that the band members who actually supported this over the last how many years are now starting to speak up you must feel good that you you know you were one of the first people that that started to stand up when others uh, around you would not uh, you must feel good that others are starting to speak and do the same sort of work that you're doing speaking for the majority well, I'm starting to feel good that uh, people are, are not feeling afraid. Well, they're still afraid, but they're being courageous now to actually stand up for economic development for their communities. Uh, and I'm talking about Canadians, Aboriginals, everybody. So it's it's only right that we hear, you know, the perspectives from everybody, not just the minority. Uh, I understand with this meeting yesterday that matriarchs within the Wet'suwet'en community were also invited, the women elders. Can you shed any light on that, and is that a common, uh, is that happen a lot? I don't know if they were invited or not, uh, but I hear that a few of them were basically, you know, made their way to the table. But I'm not sure whether or not they were invited or not. That's the thing I'm seeing uh, coming out now in that region, is actually the matriarchs and the young ladies are actually leading the charge that they say, hey, we need a voice too. And that's that's incredible. The women are actually standing up. Is this a turning point for Indigenous uh, relations uh, in the sense that this has the, the whole pipeline, this coastal gas link pipeline, is, has really started to expose both sides of this discussion? Well, you know, the turning point, actually, it, it happened 15 years ago. Hmm. Turning point already happened. That's, that's Explain what, that to people what you mean by that. It happened 15 years ago. Well, pe- people don't understand uh, what reconciliation actually means in terms of case law. They don't understand what Aboriginal title case law is meant to achieve. And when the, the Hyder Court case came out in 2004, only one court case that actually described rights and title and how to deal with it, you know, it... it it finally accomplished what Aboriginal leaders have been fighting for for decades. We want to be included in the economy. And then the, the fight was over. Now it comes down to leadership to take those principles and transition them to a better future. And so forth, that's what's been happening over here in B.C. Uh, for the last 15 years with incredible results. And now people want to say that, uh, oh, reconciliation is dead, reconciliation is wrong, reconciliation is, you know, this is not reconciliation. 
wait a minute, you haven't really actually seen the history books in terms of what's happening in the last 15 years and the results, which are incredible for our, our young people. How, um, uh, how do you balance, or how, does, how do these communities balance the power between the elected band council and the hereditary chief, because this is obviously where the indifference is within the community, in the sense that you're being an elected band council, uh, you were voted on by members and such. Uh, the elders also have a tremendous say. How do you balance who is speaking? How and are we making gains within your community um, in, in finally solving that issue? It wasn't an issue of me in solving. Uh, many communities have their own different uh, leadership structures. In fact, the Kerry Sikani First Nation community sent out a press release a couple of days ago and said, we've been getting along great with our hereditary leaders. Right. We've been getting along great with our membership. In fact, the whole time I was on elected chief and council, I had hereditary chiefs sitting at our council table as elected leaders. I mean, it's, it's, this, uh, it's what these groups do, these organizations. They come in and they find you know, the, the seeds of discontent in their communities and they, they basically break that wide open and spread it across Canada say that, and spread false narratives. And um, what are those organizations? What do you mean? Well, these are the organizations that uh, Vivian Krauss has documented her work over the last 10 years. And it's not just First Nations they prey on. They prey on everybody with false narratives. They will go after university professors, uh, university students, anybody that they, they, they can use without telling them 99% of the story. Hmm. I mean, I, I see university professors, you know, getting engaged with this cause, but not one of them have come to talk to other, other elected leadership or the hereditary leadership that have been fighting for 15 years and have actually gotten great results for the people. I've, I've not seen one of these guys come up and talk about the other 99% of us. Why does the small percentage seem to be getting the attention here? And these are questions I've asked you before. But why, why does it seem that that minority gets the attention as opposed to the others who are trying to correct it? Because it's an incredible narrative. And it, it almost sounds true if you think about yeah. uh, the Canada's treatment of Aboriginals over the last hundred years or so. Yeah, it but fits. That, 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 that treatment stopped. It stopped long, 15 years ago. In fact, industry and governments for the last 15 years have been begging to interact with the Aboriginals. Can we sign agreements? What is it that you want? Is it jobs? Is it opportunities? Is it revenue sharing? What is it? You know, we're, we're, because of case law, it actually dictates that the Crown has to do that. And that's what's been happening. Otherwise, why would, why would 20 First Nation communities all sign on, not only to these projects through agreements, but also sign on to participate in environmental assessments as well as permitting processes for the last 15 years? It, it just doesn't make sense that people would believe that Canada is over here trampling rights and title. That, that is, it's, it's far from the truth. How much was the Indigenous community involved in the environmental process on this? Uh, well, speaking on my band's uh, behalf, uh, we were there from day one. I mean, people don't understand the process of rights and title, let alone environmental assessment process. Hey, by the way, uh, I get this narrative as well from uh, university professors in Toronto, uh, environmental activists out of Alberta. And they say, we've got to stop forcing these pipelines on Aboriginal communities. They say your communities are being bribed by all this oil money. Yeah, but what, you know, what they don't know is it was actually my community in 2004 that started exploring this through an environmental assessment only to find out 
that our provincial government didn't even support it. So we brought this LNG concept to the BC legislature. So in 2004, we worked, 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 finding, finding out the BC government didn't support it. It was Christy Clark in 2011 that said, okay, I'll take a look at it. I'll see what I can do. It wasn't, it wasn't the government forcing us on us. It was actually my band and a number of other first bands that coordinated together to create groups called the First Nations LNG Alliance, the First Nations Limited Partnership. And we went to the legislature and said, look, you've got to make this happen. So there's this narrative that, oh, you got to stop pushing these pipelines at us. Actually, it was the other way around. Hmm. Um, getting back to the issue, uh, we're with uh, uh, Ellis Ross, MLA for Skeena. Ellis, with... With getting back to the hereditary chiefs and the elected band council, you said uh, the, within your situation, they're very much a part of the process. Why does this work in some communities? Why does it not work in other communities? Can one share and learn from the other? Uh, well, I can tell you what I did uh, when I became chief. And even when I was counselor, uh, I would make sure that I, if anything had happened, I would go out and I'd do consultation meetings I'd, uh, with my membership. Uh, to the point where they got sick of me. And it, it's not just a simple thing of just saying, okay, I'll, I'll hold up information in my community. I went to where my members lived. I went to the Vancouver and held public meetings, terrorists, Prince Rupert. I went everywhere. I even went to the town of Kitimat and held public meetings and said, look, this is the update. This is what we're after. Don't forget, we, we got a goal here. Remember our goal? Our goal is to be independent so someday we can say no to Indian Act funding. That's our goal. And by the way, we're, we're going to acquire land in any which way or form. We're going to acquire assets, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this with the, the BC Treaty process. And it's all part of our plan using the rights and title, political processes, everything. It's all part of our plan to actually change the narrative as well as break out of old stereotypes. Uh, with where we are right now, Ellis, how do you feel about all that? Do you feel that your plan is in jeopardy, or do you feel, you know what, finally people are looking at both sides of the story, finally we might be getting some headway. How do you feel about what is going on here? You know, this this last week uh, I made a Facebook video because people seem to have followed my Facebook videos, but it wasn't seem to be making any impact. So I, I made a Facebook video, I think it was on a Monday, and uh, Monday morning, I just w- woke up and I just, you know, I've been doing this for two and a half years now. Nobody's listening. Now, this is the last video I'm going to do. And so I made a Facebook video and said, that's it. I'm done. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. Hmm. I'll do the interviews and whatnot, uh, but uh, there's no point to this. And then overnight, I mean, overnight, the, the, everything just changed. It was incredible. The media started reporting on, on who these blockaders were. They started actually showing the, the railway line being set in fire. Maybe they started questioning other MLAs and other leaders. Uh, Ottawa started taking it seriously in the House of Commons. My my uh, leader, Andrew Wilkinson, actually uh, picked up the, uh, the subject of uh, foreign influence. He's going to bring back his private members bill to get foreign influence out of our politics. It just changed over, and I got hundreds and hundreds of emails and messages and people supporting me and just, and then Ben Council leaders and Niska Treaty leaders, they all spoke up and said, hey, we like this project, we like LNG, leave us alone, don't bother us, we have our own systems and our own leadership. And it just, so, so I woke up today and I just said, wow, hmm. I'm back. I, I feel better, I feel much better than I did last week. Wow, good for you, Alice. That's great to hear. 
<laughs> that that really is um, because it's something that from my side of this interview I've been trying to understand for a long time and honestly Ellis you're the first one that's been able to convey to me an average Canadian what has been going on here and and uh, I credit you for for bringing the voice of your community forward uh, that being said Ellis with where where the meetings are we understand that there's another me- uh, meeting going on today uh, are you optimistic about this do you think there will be a solution found obviously there's two issues here there's there's one of the pipeline, and then there's one of, you know, how do we mend these relationships uh, uh, between uh, these communities back together? Uh, do you feel optimistic with, this, with these meetings? Do you think something will come out of these? I think, uh, it, I think it has to. Does it not, Ellis? Because we're at the point that we are? I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't really say. It, it's really up to those uh, communities that uh, actually mend, and that's for the meetings themselves. I can't really say what's going to happen, but uh, you know, I can say one thing: the the community members of those four or five communities are starting to speak up, and they're starting to basically uh, basically reflect on the last fifteen years of consultation accommodation, and more importantly, why they've done it, because the matrix and the women are standing up for a future for their kids, and it, it's it's actually quite inspiring and, and quite surprising to see that, uh, hey, the, the, the key to all of this, the key to fixing it all and actually saving Canada is actually sitting with a uh, woman. Hmm. Wow. It's, 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 well, because I've seen these young women, Aboriginal women, I've seen them uh, with their, their matriarchs and their elders, elderly ladies, and it's extremely courageous for these women to stand up and doing what they're doing, speaking out. And then so it, I think the press you know, should should really highlight what these women are doing because what they're doing is it's pretty brave to speak up in a community like that. Ellis Ross has been with us, MLA for Skeena, and uh, now rejuvenated thanks to uh, the support and the other side of this story within the Indigenous community uh, coming out. Uh, you know, Ellis, I really do think with the work that you're doing that we are making some, the, the country and the Indigenous community is really making some gains here. Ellis, thanks so much for the time and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Uh, that is Ellis Ross, MLA for Skeena, and uh, his band and, and others along the route all in favor of this to help lift their communities out of poverty. He says reconciliation is not dead. It's been going on for 15 years, and it's time for everyone to jump on board. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, let's bring in uh, Tim Powers to comment on meetings that uh, happened yesterday, which is a good sign. Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, he's advised them all, or most of them anyway. He's with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be here, Scott. Uh, I just had a very, uh, I found an emotional conversation with Ellis Ross. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was talking, you know, he's been fighting this battle for 15 years and and trying to lift his community out of poverty. And he's been doing a Facebook page, I guess, on a regular regular basis and such. And he just, he got to the point where he said he's getting so much blowback from uh, those he feels have other interests involved here that he's really thought about giving up and he put that on his Facebook post that this was going to be his last one and then was completely rejuvenated when he got all kinds of support from corners he never expected to hear from uh, now he's sort of becoming a beacon in all of this Where? what do you have to say about where we are now in this discussion 
Well, I don't know if we're much farther than we were last week. I mean, I thankfully, some of the blockades have ended. Thankfully, there's some discussion that's happening, but uh, we're, we're not going to fix hundreds of years of, of discontent quickly. But it, it is frustrating when you hear the story of Ellis Ross and you hear others who have a different view than the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs speaking out and saying, we want this to happen, and they're they're diminished. Those are important points of view that need to be heard. So still a high level of frustration. Not only the Wet'suwet'en chiefs, though, but the majority of the media and the protesters are jumping on that bandwagon. And they're not they're they're not they weren't quick to grab Ellis's story or the other side. They were quick to grab that of the minority and, and that, you know, which which were catering to these different agendas. Yeah, and unfortunately, as you know, that's often how these things go. And good for you for giving Ellis a platform, and for others uh, giving him a platform. But it's uh, uh, that story. I mean, you only need look at the whole Tech Frontier mine and know that there were 14 Indigenous nations that were on board for for all of that too. There are lots of Indigenous peoples out there across the country who do want to see these developments proceed. And look, having worked in the Indigenous arena, I can tell you that the the strife that we're seeing, uh, the differences of, of opinion between um, hereditary and elected chiefs are not new, and those stories need to be told more vigorously in this whole uh, whole moment that we're living in. Why are they not being told? How come it is the way it is? Because they're not easy to tell, right? Yeah. Um, conflict is simpler to tell when it appears that one when you can affix a title to it and then suggest that, hey, you know, if this group of chiefs is against it, this must mean it's not working. So uh, that's part of it, Scott. Are Canadians protesting for the wrong reasons? There was an interesting article in the Post uh, by David Chartrand the other day uh, with the Manitoba Mateys that said the exact thing that we're talking about here. Um, people are using wet Wet'suwet'en uh, uh, placards and such as if they're in support and combining this with, you know, the, the, the terrible uh, injustices that have been done with the Aboriginal communities over the years in Canada. And the truth has taken a long time to come out, and, and, it, and it's still slowly just coming out. Do you think this w- momentum will continue? David's right. I used to do a lot of work with, with David. People appropriate events for their own purposes. Uh, certainly, look, there's lots of reasons for Indigenous peoples in Canada to protest their treatment by the federal government and, and others. Um But, yeah, people are going to use moments like this to their own advantage and try and drive the media. It's just like any other big story. Uh, Everybody puts their oar in and rows the way they think works best for them. Uh, uh, Does the PM, is the Prime Minister's office aware of this, or is he following this same lead because this fits in with his environmental wing that, that support him? Look, I know from being at Indian Affairs years ago, just after the Oka crisis and there were hot issues of the day, uh, Native communities that were upset, there were burning boats in Atlantic Canada, that you are are privy to a whole manner of information. So somebody in in Justin Trudeau's world is getting all of the information and, and, and determining how best to transmit that to the Prime Minister. And the prime minister and his team are deciding how best to communicate it, right? I mean, again, Justin Trudeau's no different from anybody else in this, though he should be. Uh, he's going to try and look to drive his agenda as best he can through uh, through through the protests, the blockade, the tech story, 
everybody's trying to position it to suit their own needs. To me, to me, Tim, that is what makes this complicated. Everybody talks about how complicated this is. You know, even I'm starting to figure it out. It's not that complicated. What's complicated is when special interests and politicians, as you said, skew it for their own gain. Yeah, and, and, and in the media frame, that's often more simple to, to, to describe, as we talked about earlier, right? So you got to do the work to understand some of the links and the histories here. And again, depends on people's engagement, Scott. If they want to spend more time learning, I think, as you have, as you've just said, you'll, you'll get to see a bit of a different picture here. I mean, I will give some credit to CBC. I watched last night uh, some of the stories about Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Relations, going to Smithers, B.C. to meet the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. And there were uh, some clips there of uh, people who uh, in the Wet'suwet'en nation who said, look, we don't support the chiefs. We have a different view. We want this to get over with. Uh, we, we don't like this becoming so personal. I think more of that needs to happen. The fuller story needs to be told. Now that we're getting a glimpse of that, do you feel that will happen? Is momentum moving in that direction? I don't know if momentum is moving in that direction, but I think it will help take the temperature down a bit. And I hope that's the case, because I think when the temperature is elevated, dangerous things can happen. Uh, what more do you think can happen out of these meetings? Do you think, how significant are these, or is this no different than an idol no more or whatever? I mean, obviously we've seen this happen a lot. I yep. mean, is this, is it different this time? Well, it seems so some of the messaging coming out of the meetings is these are great meetings, but the real meeting we want um, from the Wet'suwet'en perspective, or at least it's being framed as the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief perspective, is we want the prime minister and we want Premier Horgan. So if you're just having the meetings, but they're only, you know, window dressing, then who knows? I, I, we'll have to let the meetings conclude and, and see if there's some return to a more, a more predictable behavior. I uh, can't answer that right now, but if it is about Trudeau and Horgan, then maybe these meetings aren't as valuable as they could be. So why would they not just show up? Does Do, do they show up in the end when there's a result to, to, uh, to show us? In other words, if the blockades aren't going to come down, uh, then the prime minister won't go or these people wouldn't go. And, or, for example, if they went and nothing happened and then the blockade stayed up, that they would lose credibility. W- what is the reason for them not going? Uh, Why wouldn't well, they just get on a bus and go? Well, I think it shows precedent, right? It sets precedent. So, Isn't it a little next? late for that, Tim? Never too late for that, Scott. I mean, if, let's say, if the B.C. minister and, and Carolyn Bennett are able to come to an agreement uh, doing their jobs, then uh, then the, the, then they've had success, right? Uh, but if Trudeau needs to go mediate every Indigenous dispute with the Crown, uh, that's going to be his full-time job. So I think they're trying to find a way not to have to do that uh, in hopes that a precedent isn't set. But it was front and center on his platform, so why should he not dedicate more time to that? And again, well, if, if, it, if, there, if there's an issue where you need to do that, isn't this the one where rail service has been shut down for like three weeks? Maybe, but I mean, if you're the prime minister, again, you want to guard against that precedent. He's sure. having a first minister's meeting with um, the premiers and indigenous leaders on March 12th. Problem is also, and look, he's a, he's a good 
good representative of Indigenous communities, Perry Bellegarde, but even he doesn't represent the specific interests of the 600 nations that are part of the Assembly of First Nations. So this all also seems to come back to what's the best structure to mediate this? It's not practical on an ongoing basis yeah. to have the Prime Minister in solving these problems. Uh, where do you think this is going short term? Uh, well, I'm sure we'll have some statement about how the meetings were productive. Uh, whether that leads to an outcome, I don't know. Uh, I, I think this is going nowhere fast. Um, mm. You don't seem optimistic about this. I seem more optimistic about it, Tim, than you do. I mean, that's a role reversal, isn't it? <laughs> that normally doesn't happen. I don't know. I, I've just seen this movie a lot of times before. There may yeah, be yeah. partial tru- uh, partial breaks and the like, but, uh, but I think we're going to be at this for a while, to be honest with you. Uh, your thoughts, can't let you go, only got about a minute left or so, on the tech mine cancellation. Well, our company does work with tech, so I have a lot of thoughts, but I'll give you my political thoughts. Um, I, I think the key thing to take away from it all is pay attention to the letter that the CEO, Don Lindsay... Nobody made. can decode it. Everybody's decoding well, it in their I'm own way, Tim. You, I'm going to decode it without okay. decoding it. All right. Pay attention to the line that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, governments, you all need to get your P-O-O-P together yeah. and figure this out and stop P-O-O-P-E-I-N-G on each other and let's get working because capital markets want governments, indigenous leaders to figure it all out, because when you heighten the rhetoric, the money doesn't stay. Well said. Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. That's why he's advising. Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. (laughs) Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Following the recent cancellation of the tech mine in Alberta, SecondStreet.org updated its list of stalled or canceled natural resources projects in Canada since 2014. And the value of those projects is now more than the equivalent of building an NHL size arena every day for a year. That is money that does not go into Canadian coffers. That is money that does not go to help make life easier for Canadians and provide money and funding for all of the great programs that governments provide. Uh, To talk more about all of this, and uh, joining us is the president of SecondStreet.org, Colin Craig, and he is on the line now. Colin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, tell us what Second Street is. So we're a uh, Canadian think tank, and what we try to do is really bring all these government policies down to the main streets of Canada and understand how these policy decisions are affecting everyday people. So we really try and tell the stories behind the numbers, but at the same time, we're also doing research to look into what's going on, how government policies are affecting people. Where we're seeing right now with the Wet'suwet'en protests and, and people protesting in support of the Wet'suwet'en, even though the majority of them want this project uh, through, uh, do you think people realize what they're protesting for? Do you think they, do you think they get this? I, I think in many cases they don't. I mean, we've seen media stories now where they've interviewed people who are protesting and they ask them a pretty basic question, like, what is it that's going through the pipeline that you're protesting? And the people will say, well, it's oil. And then the person doing the interview corrects them and says, no, it's actually natural gas. It's a totally different substance. So I think in, in many cases these, these protesters are not doing their research ahead of time. I, you know, they, they claim that they're standing up for the wet, sweat, and people. But as you pointed out, the wet, sweat, and people actually want these projects to go ahead. They've had multiple elections 
in which they could have uh, tossed out elected officials who were supportive of these projects. And every time they keep voting in people that uh, to their band councils that want these projects to go ahead. So I think it's, it's pretty clear that the wet sweat and people want the the project to go ahead. And what's happening is we're, we're getting some environmentalists taking advantage of some people from that community who don't want it. And they're trying to really, through smoke and mirrors, try and pre- pretend that this is something that it isn't. And, uh, they're trying to suggest that people don't want it, and I don't think that's accurate. Uh, they, they do seem to really protest with what everybody pay. You know, I mean, Canadians are going on, they're living their days, they're doing whatever they have to do, go to work, uh, raise their kids, and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, we're being mean to the Indigenous community. It, it, they don't un, they don't peel back that extra layer and find out anything uh, uh, that, that's really behind it or the communities that support it. And it feels like we only learn about these major projects. This happens quite a bit, does it not? Especially in Alberta of late. Yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing that where environmentalists are uh, trying to obstruct these projects. And there's been a lot of research now, especially by Lady named Vivian Krauss, to look at, well, where are they getting all this money? How is it that they're able to fly up all these celebrities? And how is it that they're able to fund all their activities? And a lot of the money's coming from the United States. And there, there's various reasons why I think the money's coming from the U.S. And in some cases, they're trying to make it so that Canada doesn't have any other options, especially with oil to export the resource to the U.S. or no one else. And and because that happens and the U.S. takes advantage of Canada, it doesn't pay us the same amount for oil than what they pay others. So yeah. that, that's part of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think what we really need to think about is just what you're hearing from the grassroots. Everyday people in these Aboriginal communities, it's the same as every other Canadian. They don't want to live in poverty. Yeah. They want jobs. They want opportunities. They want it so that their kids can grow up and go to school, get an education, and, and that's really what, what I've seen, uh, you know, over the years as I've been observing these protests and listening to the grassroots from the communities. You value at the loss of these pro- uh, projects at well over $200 billion. That's a lot of hospitals. That's a lot of schools. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a huge number. And, you know, it's one of those numbers where it's so big, it's hard to even understand how big it is. And so what we thought is, okay, how do we make this meaningful for people? And a lot of people across the country can understand that when you build an NHL arena, there's a lot of people involved yeah. in that project, right? You need people to survey the site and excavate it, and build the, pour the concrete and, you know, the structure and there's lawyers and accountants and tons and tons of people involved. So we thought, well, let's compare it to that. And what we found was that the value of all these big natural resource projects, oil and gas, mining uh, across the country, um, it's roughly equivalent to building an NHL arena every single day for a year. It's a huge, huge wow. economic opportunity that Canada's missing out on. And I think naturally the question is, well, what's the gain? You know, we're missing out on all these jobs, we're missing out on all these tax revenues, as you pointed out, because these projects pay a lot of money that help fund our schools and hospitals. So what's the upside? And people will, will claim, oh, well, we're, we're helping the environment, but we're not. They just go to other parts of the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If a project doesn't happen in Alberta or Ontario or whatever for a mining resource or um, oil and gas, I mean, the world just finds the resource from somewhere else. Colin, and, I got to let you go there. We're out of time. Uh, Colin Craig, President, SecondStreet.org, uh, SecondStreet.org to find out more. They have realized that and researched that the loss of projects in Canada, $213 billion since 2013 and enough to build you a rink every day. Uh, thank you so much, Colin. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks a lot, sir. Bye-bye. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.